This morning we come to Romans 9. We are looking at verses 14 through 18. Romans 9, 14 through 18. If you are able, please rise for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Romans 9, beginning in verse 14. The infallible, authoritative word of God reads as follows. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or extortion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us, would convict us, would correct us, and draw us to you in total surrender and worship, for you are wise, for you are the one who has a wonderful plan of salvation for your people. And that plan is perfect. Lord, thank you that you have drawn sinners like us to you. Thank you, Lord, that you forgive sinners like us. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us new hearts to recognize you, to recognize our need for you, and to repent from sin. Allow us then, Lord, to learn from your word this morning. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> I've titled today's sermon for the passage we just read, Is God Unjust? That is an ancient question that is not just popular in our day. Whenever someone <coughs> finds out that there are Christian principles or convictions or beliefs, it's not uncommon that somebody will say, well, wait a minute, like, how can you believe in God if there's so much evil or if God was able to stop evil, like why doesn't he stop that? So that type of question of objection is as old as the Bible. <clears throat> Let me open up with an illustration that I'm taking. I'm giving credit to Pastor Sujel Michelen. He is a pastor in the Dominican Republic. Uh, whom I have been following, especially during this series in Romans, uh, because he did a series in Romans from which I've been edified. And in this particular passage, he gave an illustration of one of his elders that was given a Sunday school lesson to grade school kids there in the Dominican Republic. It was a small group of seven young kids. And the teacher set them up with the following understanding. He said to them, hey, let's suppose that today I have a certain amount of money in these envelopes here. Should someone come and tell me what to do with this money if it's mine? To which the kid said, well, no, I mean, it's yours. You can, you can do with it as you please. Okay, so everybody's under that understanding. Everybody shake their head in agreement. Yes, okay. So then, <clears throat> the teacher took three envelopes 
and gave those three envelopes to three of the seven kids. All right, listen up, kids. Pretend somebody gives you an envelope. Told them, okay, go ahead and open it. And there was a dollar inside each of those envelopes. Now, this is Dominican Republic, okay? Maybe if we give our kids a dollar, they'll be like, what, a dollar? But to these kids, like, wow, this is great. This is awesome. The teacher then asked the four that didn't receive an envelope, what do you four think? And they said, well, that's kind of messed up, you know? I mean, we didn't get nothing, and these other kids, they, they got something. To which the three kids that did receive the envelope said, hey, wait, didn't we all just agree that if the teacher had money and he could do whatever he pleased with it, that it would be fair, right? We would have nothing to complain about. And say, so, yeah, yeah, I know, but still kind of messed up. The teacher then took three more envelopes and gave them to three of the four that had not received anything. They opened it, and behold, they too had a dollar bill. So like, ah, now it's looking a little bit better. They were smiling and happy. The teacher turned to the one kid that had not received an envelope and asked him, how do you feel about this? The kid said, well, now I know for sure that I've been cheated. To which the six kids said, wait a minute, didn't we all agree that the teacher could do whatever he wanted with these envelopes? The kid said, yeah, you know, but still, this is just not right. Teacher then suddenly took a seventh envelope and gave it to the outstanding kid that had not received an envelope. Told him, go ahead, open it. To his pleasant surprise, he had a $5 bill in that envelope. The teacher then turned to the other six kids and asked them, what do you think about that? To which in almost unison protest, they said, well, wait, 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 wait a minute. You set us up. This is totally messed up. We only got one. You gave him five? Not fair, was the cry of the children. Now, that's a real story that happened at, at that church with those kids, right? And it illustrates a couple of things. First, we as human beings, we often have the incorrect view of justice versus equality. It's actually a very prominent topic in our culture even today. Justice versus equality. Just as the teacher had no obligation to give his students money, he would, have, he would have been perfectly just to not give any of them anything or to give some of them something. Now, when this analogy is made and applied to Almighty God, of course you recognize that this analogy will sooner or later break apart, yes, but we can still see a valuable point, and that is we in our human understanding, we might be okay with the fact that God is sovereign in salvation, that salvation is a work of God. But the moment we realize that not all people will be saved, we immediately begin to act like those children that didn't receive an envelope. Like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What do you mean not everybody's going to be saved? And leads us to imply, either explicitly say it or imply, that God is somehow unfair. Now today we're going to see that nothing can be further from the truth because Paul tackles this very question. Given the premise that God elects people for salvation, is there injustice with God because he does that? Paul gives us the answer clearly 
and then provides a rationale for why he is giving us that answer. So when considering this question, <coughs> Paul's main point in this text is going to be the following. What's Paul's main point? Being inspired by the Holy Spirit is this. God shows mercy, not injustice. Okay? So let us dig right in. Point number one will be this, verses 14 and 15, injustice versus mercy. These two verses read as follows. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So Paul anticipates that somebody will bring this objection as he has taught that God chooses people, that God preordains salvation, somebody will have this objection. Is there injustice with God? We know from what we've been reading here in Romans that God chose Abraham to be the root, the prime patriarch. He did not choose anybody else around there, which were all pagans. He chose Abraham. Then from Abraham's offspring, he made a promise. From the descendants of Abraham came Isaac, which was chosen and promised as the child through whom the nations will be blessed. Now, God did not choose Ishmael, okay? only Isaac. Now, from Isaac's descendants, specifically twins, God chose Jacob to be in the lineage of the promise, not Esau. So God chose. So the point is that God, he chooses people for salvation. He chooses some and not others. Not all the descendants of the flesh, in the case of Israel, are of Israel, but only those that God chooses as his children. And under that context, Paul says, okay, so is there injustice in God's, in God's part? Now, this question, which a variation of that can be applicable to our very day, has two false premises when it comes to God's decree. Let's take a quick look at these two main false premises. There may be more, but I think these are two of the main ones. Number one is the misunderstanding that God is capable of wrongdoing, that God can somehow be impartial. In other words, we are putting God in the seat of the accused. Like we are going to judge God because of what he has decreed or what he has done or is doing. Essentially attributing to God the potential of sin. Now, God is holy. He cannot sin. Where do we find this out? Where do we go to know the nature of God, God's character? We look at the scriptures. We have to submit ourselves to something, to some form of authority. So if we have questions about who God is and his character, where will we go to find the answers? We can only go to the solid ground, which is God's word. More about that in a second. So let's take a quick look at what the Bible says about God's character. There's obviously many. I've chosen two. First Samuel <clears throat> chapter 2, verse 2, it says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. The uniqueness of God 
being holy, being absolutely separate from creation. God's holiness. The second example of the character of God as being holy is Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Okay, the character of God. Even on those who say to be so-called gods, God is above that. Those that sit to be lords, our Lord, Jehovah, is above that. He is not partial, and he takes no bribe. So entertaining the idea that there is injustice with God, attributing potential wrongdoing to God Almighty, is actually sin on our behalf. God's nature is holy. He cannot sin. It is our lack of understanding and sinful nature that makes us think in a distorted fashion to even consider the possibility that whatever God is doing, whatever he has decreed, maybe he was off somewhere in his plan. My friends, take this as a main point. If God could do wrong, or if God has ever done wrong, even once, he would not be God and not be worthy of our affections and our faith. <clears throat> God cannot do wrong. The other false premise when bringing up the question of whether there is wrongdoing with God is this. We as humans, in our fallen nature, by default, we think that we are deserving of God's favor. Very often, we have this notion that as people, we have this implied right to be treated with favor by God. And that unless we are really, really, really bad, like so-and-so, you know, point to your neighbor or to some ogre in history. Now, if I were like that, then I could see how God would have to punish me and condemn me. But, I mean, I'm not them. So, therefore, God should show me favor. Now, in a general sense, God has shown common grace to all of humanity. All of us, all of you, whether Christian or not, have already enjoyed the common grace benefits that God has given you. You were given a life. You are breathing right now, that very air you're breathing right now, that's God's air. You're stealing from him if you're not a Christian. You have already enjoyed the benefits of common grace. Perhaps even if you're sick, you've enjoyed many years of health, family, the ability to love and be loved, enjoying seeing your children be raised and grow, enjoy the great blessings of life, God-giving gifts, abilities to learn, to study, to do pleasant things in your life, etc. All those things were not deserved. And yet, God bless you with those things. For every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. So, all those things are general blessings in God's common grace. Now, let us consider this. Given that, we as humans, we have original sin. We are born with the curse of Adam's disobedience and sin. Therefore, nobody is innocent before God. 
No one ever has had a quote-unquote clean record before God. Nobody. Not even our newborns. So all humans are tainted from the time of conception. Like King David alluded, in sin I was conceived. We are conceived in sin because of the seed of Adam. We are corrupted from the beginning, at the box. So we have original sin. And then we have actual sin. From the moment we are small children and begin to interact and show our character, we show our sinful nature. No one taught us how to disobey. No one taught us how to be rebellious. We are by nature and choice disobedient to authority and ultimately disobedient to God's authority. If we are unconvinced that humanity is not innocent, look at history, look at today, but let's not go too far. Look inside your own heart. We are and have been sinful and disobedient against God. And since the wages of sin is death, our own sinful world has reaped what we have sown collectively and individually. Yet, we've benefited from God's grace given to us, either common grace for everyone or specific grace in salvation. Therefore, to the question then, is there injustice with God? Paul answers it with a profound no. No way. Another translation says, God forbid. It has never been so. It will never be so. Now, it would have to take a changing of the definitions of what justice means in order to fit this any other way. And since we don't change the definition of words, especially because God defines what things mean, it is not possible for God to be unjust. And by the way, our culture has now begun to change the definitions of words. Things like justice does not mean justice to the world we live in. Things like marriage does not mean what God has told us it means. Now our culture has come with different definitions and made loss out of that. Our whole system is corrupt from the top, top down and from the bottom up. We made new definitions of the word woman and the word men, literally, as ridiculous as that sounds, in order to fit the depraved minds of our culture. That is a total rejection of God's design, and yet another sign of how our sinful generation is, by nature and choice, given to a reprobate mind, Romans chapter 1. Go take a look at what most politicians champion and advertise today. Romans chapter 1. The sins in Romans chapter 1. They have been given over to a reprobate mind. We must stand and fight against that. My point there being, unless we change the definition of what justice means, of what God means, no other answer will be fitting other than there is no injustice with God. Next verse, Romans 9.15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So in answering the objection, what is the standard that Paul uses 
Where does Paul go to in order to address that question? He goes to the scriptures. He is quoting from the Old Testament. We should remind us all, when we are dealing with life's toughest questions, where are you going to go to find your answers? To our, our buddies that will give us their own worldly advice? No, we got to go to the Word of God or to our brothers and sisters who will direct us to the Word of God. So that verse is from Exodus 33. There, God is interacting directly with Moses. And to some extent, Moses is doubting God. Like, God, are you really going to be with me if I go and do what you ask? And as Moses is seeking that type of assurance, Moses hits up God and, tell, and tells him, like, God, like, just let me see your glory. Like, look me up, basically. The point there is that Paul's going back to the writings of Moses <coughs> To prove that God has decreed from eternity past who he would show favor to, although none were deserving of it, not even Moses himself. That God has been doing and declaring his sovereign election of people in all his dealings throughout history. And there is no room to charge God with wrongdoing. His interactions with Moses plainly show that. God is holy. He cannot show his face to Moses. Otherwise, God's holiness will smite Moses down and he'll die. For nobody can see the face of God and live. God is holy. Humanity is unholy. Therefore, the only ones who fit the charge of wrongdoing is not God, but it's us. God does not show injustice. Rather, God shows mercy to some people. So given that, who does it depend on? That's point number two. What does what depend on? Salvation, election. Who's going to be right with God? <clears throat> Let's look at Romans 9.16. It says, so then it depends not, my friends, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Okay? I recognize this is a tough teaching for many. Please, let's look at what the Word of God says. So election, what is election? That means that God calls the shots on who gets saved. <clears throat> Salvation is a work of God. Salvation is not a work of man or the will of man or of us chasing after it. Exertion, that's what that, the word means. So it is not a work of man. Galatians 2.16. The first half of that verse says, Yet we know <clears throat> that a person <coughs> is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? So salvation is not a work of man. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Secondly, it is not of human will. What does that mean? Like, okay, like, I'm going to somehow come up with my own, in my own mind, in my own heart, in my own being, that I want to be right with God. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to make that will happen. The Bible says, no one wills to be saved out of their own volition. 
In opposition to the doctrine of, of election, some suppose that there is, picture this huge crowd, like a sea of people, like a concert going to people, and they are somehow coming to God and saying, God, please, please save us. And God somehow sitting in the servant saying, nope, you are not elect. Go away. My friends, there is no such scenario. No one, no one seeks for God out of their own will. No one is coming to Christ in order to be rejected by him. No one. The reason people do not come to Christ is because they love their sin and they hate Jesus. That's why. That is the key. The gates of salvation or the path of salvation, although it's narrow, it is an invitation for all. Acts 17.30 says the following. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, New Testament era, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, repent of sin. This invitation is open to all. No one will be left with an excuse. Well, I wasn't elect. No one. You didn't come because you love your sin and you hate Jesus. Next, it is not of human exertion. That means to strive for, to chase after. Like, I really want that prize, and man, I'm going to work for it. Nope. This is a warning to the non-Christian. You could be trying to be good all you want in order to be accepted by God. This is also a warning to the Christian. You could be trying to earn God's favor by being good in order to be in good standing with God. There's no difference. Either non-Christian or to the Christian. You both are in sin. And you will fall ever short of meeting God's standard if you are seeking to be justified by your good conduct. You are not going to cut it. Good luck. Galatians 3.10 says, For all who rely on the works, this is both the religious and the non-religious, okay? In the works of the law, are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. You want to try to be good by doing good things? Knock yourself out. But just know, you are about to hit a brick wall and be crushed. You can't do it. No way. That scripture then goes on to say <clears throat> that therefore is, it's evident that nobody's going to be justified by good works because you can't. You can't keep the law. Rather, and then it gives a quotation that the righteous, those that are right before God, shall live by faith, which Romans chapter 2 also, also talked about. Okay, so not by human exertion or human will or by doing good. But it is God who saves out of his tender, tender mercy and God's own will. I urge you to memorize the following passage. John chapter 1 verses 12 and 13. I keep going back to this verse. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you stop there, somebody can say, aha, see all those who believe, all those who receive them. Keep reading. Verse 13 says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, 
Remember in Sunday school we're talking about flesh and blood? Like we see that again there. So not of human nature, in other words. Okay? Or human flesh. Nor the will of man. You cannot will to be right with God. But of whose will? Of whose volition? But of God. God is the one who owns salvation. So salvation depends on God, on his election, according to his mercy, according to his will. My brothers and sisters, thank God that it is that way. If it depended on us, we'd be lost. We would be lost. So thanks be to God that salvation is his doing. Now a quick note about the words we read in the scripture that God shows mercy to whomever he wills. And truthfully, that language is basically telling us in, if I could say in, in modern street terms, because he so feels like it. That is his sovereign will that we will never understand. My friends, let us never put ourselves in a place where we want to be sovereign over our own little kingdom and be so arrogant as to say, I'm doing this and that and the other because I so feel like it. My friends, that is not something that we should be saying. For God could knock us down at any time and humble us. Only the God of the universe can say that because he owns everything. We don't own anything. And therefore, we cannot have such attitude to say, well, if God acts that way, so can... No, you can't. You cannot. You will be humbled. Do not try God. Third and final point, we're going to look at undeserved favor, which is grace, versus justice. Romans 9, 17 and 18, it says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Okay, so now we see the example of Pharaoh. And then basically the repetition of the fact that God has mercy on whoever he wills and hardens whomever he wills. First and foremost, let me make this point in that text. The beginning of verse 17. It says, the scripture says to Pharaoh... Let's think about that. Please, my brothers and sisters, when we're reading scripture, let's be accurate in the words and the understanding that we're reading. Who is speaking to Pharaoh? God Almighty is speaking to Pharaoh. And here it says, the scripture says to Pharaoh. What does that mean? When the Bible says, scripture says, it is equating that to God says. What the scripture says is what God says. And in that truth, I plead with you, my brothers and sisters, that you would anchor your life, the direction of your life, the authority of your life, by what the Bible says. Any other authority is sinking sand that will sink you. Believe God's word, even against all opposition from the foolish counsel of this wicked generation, and even against the wicked dispositions of your own hearts. Anchor yourself to what the scripture says. Because what the scripture says 
is what God says. Do not be like Pharaoh and harden your heart. When, speech, when scripture speaks, God speaks. Okay, now, what happens when we don't submit to God's authority? Train wreck. Train wreck. Sooner or later, train wreck. Guaranteed. So that should be a great reminder for us, my brothers and sisters, to submit to God's word. You are not your own authority. Submit to God's word. Psalm chapter 2 talks about the attitude of such people who do not want to submit to God's word. In brief, it mentions that there are rulers and kings conspiring together against God Almighty and his anointed, that means Jesus, to unite themselves of any obligation, to cut themselves off from any accountability to God Almighty. Essentially, with an attitude of, let us dethrone God and let us put ourselves in his throne. Do we not live in such a world right now? It's not our culture saying, forget God, who needs that? That's ancient mumbo jumbo. Like, we'll rule ourselves. We'll come up with our own understanding of what true and false and good and evil. That's where we are, my brothers and sisters. That's where we are. And we are in a generation that has officially, like not kind of implied, no, officially has declared what is evil good and what is good evil. Officially. Again, from the top down and from the bottom up, both ways. That's where we're at now. Now, Again, let us not search too far for who has done this. Although those words of Psalm 2 have not necessarily come out of our lips to say, God, who are you? I don't want to be under your authority. Although those very words may not have come out of our mouths, our attitude towards God, the lack of submitting to his word, has indeed said the same thing to God. God, I do not want you ruling over me. Let me sit in the throne of my own little sovereign life so that I can rule myself according to my sinful desires. At one point or another, or maybe some of us still are in that rebellion. May we seek repentance if that's us. Back to the verse. <clears throat> So God says he has a purpose for this stiff-necked, stubborn, evil Pharaoh. And what is the purpose that God has for him? To show God's glory. To show his majesty. After Pharaoh opposed to heeding God's message through Moses to let his people go, <coughs> God could have wiped them out. He could have smoked them right there and there. Get them out of the way and accomplish his purpose in that way. And righteously so. God would be righteous if he would have done that. However, God didn't. In God's wisdom, he instead chose to let things play out. Pharaoh wants to be rebellious? <coughs> let him. God's going to use that for a specific purpose. 
Now, consider the alternative. What some commentators may essentially put like this. A God who depends on the impulses and the whims of human will. Like Moses, please go and tell Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, please, would you please let my people go? How unbiblical would such thinking be? An impotent God who cannot do anything, and he needs to plead to change the will of humans. You see how foolish that is? Now, again, let's not go too far. <clears throat> As we look at stiff-necked Pharaoh and many of the other examples we have in Scripture, in ways, we are no different when we think that salvation of a person depends on the person instead of God. This past week, I actually heard a preacher say that. Something along the lines of, but please open your heart to Jesus because it's not up to him. Like, you have to do it. How foolish is that? Now, note. This does not mean we don't evangelize or we don't preach or we don't share the gospel. No. It means that we do that and then God acts. God does his job, which is the salvation of people. We are commanded to share the gospel. God will save people through it. So the point here is that God has a purpose in dealing with wicked Pharaoh and hardening his heart to show God's glory and power in the judgment of Pharaoh. And show once again that God will blamelessly show mercy on whomever he wills. And he will harden whomever he wills. And he will do that for his own glory. So then, <clears throat> in God's plan of saving some people and condemning others, let us please understand this. Because again, the subtopic of, of this last point is, the grace, undeserved favor, versus the justice of God. So let us understand this. All have received common grace. Every human that has ever lived has received God's common grace. Out of all of those that receive common grace, all people who ever lived, some received God's grace and mercy of salvation, specific grace, for us to be saved. While all others, which is the majority, have received the rightful condemnation for their guilt of sin. Some receive mercy, some receive justice. Hear me, my brother and sister. No one receives injustice. No one received injustice. It's either mercy and grace or justice. No one receives injustice. Okay, so now, hopefully we can now better understand the response that Paul gives. Is there injustice with God? No. By no means, he says, to think otherwise would be to make a false God after our own image. A false God who actually is impartial. A false God who would actually take a bribe. And we are told he is no such God. He is absolutely holy and righteous in all his decrees and his judgments. Final thoughts. 
<coughs> reflections on this passage. Number one, no one has an excuse. No one, not me, not you, my friends, will ever be able to hide behind the doctrine of election and excuse yourself by saying, well, I'm not elect, so might as well go and live it up. That is a false notion, again, that somebody came to God or wanted to be saved and God said, ah, nope, no such thing. God has to call for all men everywhere to repent of their sin and believe the gospel. The call is to everyone. If you're not a Christian, it's because you love your sin and you hate Christ, period. Not because you're not elect. That is none of our business. That is God's decree. Secondly, want to know what injustice is? Think of the passion of Christ. Think of how he was humiliated, sped upon, mocked, murdered. There's a Spanish artist that has a song talking about, had I been there, I would have sped on your face. Had I been there, I would have cheered on and mocked you when you were carrying your cross. Had we been there, brothers and sisters, we would have done the same. You want to talk about injustice? Yet those of us that have or will partake or have partaken in such atrocity turn back to God and said, you are the one who is unjust. You see that? My friends, when it comes to God being holy and us being sinful, there's only one offended party. There's only one side that has transgressed. And it is not God. It is you. So then, what are we to do? Point number three, our last reflection. What are we to do? We are to respond to the gospel. Recognize our sin. Repent either for salvation or for forgiveness as an already believer that we know we're not walking right. Respond to the call to repent. And then pray. Pray for ourselves, for our church, for our families. And pray for the salvation of others. Yes, pray for the salvation of others. Never give up in praying for them. Now, there's a common objection somebody has told me literally in the past. Well, you're a Calvinist. Don't pray. Why are you going to pray? If God has to select, he's going to accomplish his purposes. That seems pretty clever, right? Like, aha, I got you. To which I respond, okay, well, you're a Christian, right? Yeah. Is everybody in your family saved? No. Have you prayed for who? Like your son? Yeah, my son. Okay, have you prayed for your son? Oh, yeah, I pray. For... Why are you praying? It's not up to God. Just go and talk to your son. Reason him into the, into the gospel. If it's up to your son, talk to your son. You have no business asking God to save him. It's not up to God. You see that? Now the tables are turned. 
So we should pray. How foolish it is not to pray because we think that God is going to, God is going to accomplish his purposes. And if we are unfaithful to pray, he'll find somebody else that is faithful to pray. Let us not be disobedient. We are to pray. Let's pray that God gives us a correct understanding of the doctrine of election, which brings the most glorification to our God, King, Almighty Jesus. Believe what the word says. We do not need to apologize for what the word of God says. Well, God really meant Jacob I loved, Esau. What he really meant is that he kind of loved him. No, it says God hated Esau. That's what it says. And God needs no apologies to downplay what he says in his word. Psalm 5.5, 5, Psalm 11.5 says that God not only hates the sin, but he hates the sinner. We're told in scripture that God is angry every day at the sinner. I don't need to apologize for God's word. He is righteous to do so. When we understand God's holiness, it should turn us into tears to say, I cannot believe he has shown me so much mercy. I cannot believe he hasn't already just wiped me out. When we understand God's mercy and his sovereign work of salvation, we give him the most glory. We do not come to the table with anything but our wickedness. So let us understand that truth, my brothers and sisters, and rejoice in the fact that God has not shown his children justice, but he has shown his children mercy. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we reflect on these truths, which sometimes go against our human selfish nature, I pray, Lord, that you give us the correct understanding of your holiness, of your call to salvation for all everywhere to repent. And that that call would begin with us repenting of our sin. And then it would go to our brethren in the faith to correct each other, to rebuke each other, to lead each other, going back to what your word says. Lord, we pray for the salvation of all those that don't know you, especially those that may be in this room, and then those that are close to us, friends, relatives, especially during this Christmas season, that you would call them to salvation, Lord. For we know that it's not by human will, or us chasing after it, or us trying to wrestle with that, no. But yet, somehow, we know, Lord, that we are to pray for them. Let us not give up in praying for them. Lord, and lastly, I pray that as we embrace these truths, that you would give us gratitude, humility, and a thankful heart that leads us to forgive each other, to forgive others. For as your word says, him who has been forgiven much, loves much. Thank you for loving us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.